All right, so we're going to look at the preaching text today from page four in your bulletins, if you guys can turn there. I'm going to read to you from Genesis 25, starting in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Esau was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew. For I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of God. So um, we're going to start a new series. For the next several weeks, we're going to look at the gospel in the life of Jacob. Now, who is Jacob? Well, Jacob is the third patriarch, right? There was Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And in fact, if you read the book of Genesis, about 80% of Genesis is focused on on this family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, you know, what's the big deal about this family? What's so important about this family? Well, it starts in Genesis chapter 12. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, through your family, I will bring about my salvation. Abraham, through your family, through your seed, I will save the world. So that in every generation of your family, there will be a chosen son. And he will lead the family. He will carry on um, the Messianic line. And then his son, and then his son, until finally one day, the son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be born, the Savior of the world. And so this is the key to reading uh, Genesis, and this is the key to reading the life of Jacob, to remember this promise given to Abraham that God is going to use this family to save the world. And so we're starting then, sort of in the middle of this story, with the birth of Jacob. This sort of crucial juncture where we transition from the life of Isaac to the life of Jacob. And in this story, we're going to see three things. And here's basically my outline. We're going to see that God fulfills his promise to Abraham through difficulties, through reversal, 
and then finally through a warning. Okay, so those are my three points. Number one, through uh, difficulties. Number two, through reversal. And then number three, through a warning. So let's start. Number one, God fulfills his promises through difficulties. So the story starts in verse 20. Isaac marries Rebekah at age 40. Now, we're not told how old Rebekah is, but, you know, we can sort of guess based on the customs of the day. She was probably in her late teens, probably around age 18. And then in verse 21, it tells us that Rebekah was barren. Now, this would have been absolutely devastating to Isaac and Rebekah. And it's hard for us to appreciate as modern people what barrenness, what childlessness meant in that culture. Because you see, children, and particularly sons, was everything in the ancient world. You see, in an agrarian society, the more children that you had, the larger your labor force, right? So that the more children you had, the richer you became. And children would take care of you in your old age so that if you didn't have children, you would become absolutely destitute in your old age. But more than that, uh, more than these economic reasons, children represented honor and prestige so that the more children, the more sons that you had, the greater your standing, the greater your status in that culture. Especially for women. You see, the chief task The chief role of a woman in that culture was to be a mother, right? And now I'm not saying that, you know, the Bible embraces or endorses this this way of thinking, this cultural value, but this is the reality, right? That children were everything. Now, how long, well, let let me say this. Even today, right, even today, even though we don't have all this freighted meaning Um, that comes with having children, even today, we know it is a great tragedy to want children and not to be have any, right? Even today in this modern world, there's a lot of infertility and there's a lot of barrenness. Even today we understand, we can understand this problem. Now, how long was um, Rebecca barren? If you look at the end of verse uh, 26, it says that Isaac was uh, 60 years old, right? 60 years old when uh, Esau and Jacob uh, were born, which means Rebecca was barren for 20 years. Rebecca, it wasn't until Rebecca was in her late 30s that she finally became pregnant. Now, I want you to uh, just pause for a moment. And can you imagine the incredible agony and the, and the suffering and the pain that Rebecca must have felt? 20 years of desperately wanting and hoping for children. 20 years of shame. In a culture in which, if you didn't have children, you were nothing. You were nobody. 20 years of seeing other women give birth, of seeing little children all around you, but never one of them your own. And then, just imagine that kind of agony she must have felt. And then finally, finally, Rebecca becomes pregnant, right? But she just can't catch a break. It becomes a very difficult pregnancy. Look at... Um, verse 22, it says, The children struggled together within her. Now, that is a very mild translation. The word struggled there in the original Hebrew means something more like crashed, smashed. And it's a word used to describe violent destruction. And we're not sure exactly what that meant. But basically, 
Rebecca was experiencing some kind of excruciating pain in her pregnancy. Now, um, what was that like for her, you know? Can you imagine what, her, what she was thinking? Maybe she was thinking, I'm going to die, right? Or maybe she thought, maybe I'm going to lose my babies. Remember, this is a woman, first pregnancy in her late 30s. She's having twins. This is a very high-risk pregnancy, right? Um, now that, you know, Christina, my wife, is pregnant, um, almost due, I can really understand this story so much better, right? Because every pain, you know, every development, every movement, I'm just so, so concerned, so worried. Like, what does that mean, right? Um, and I'm worried. Maybe Christina, might, something might happen to her. Maybe something might happen to the baby. But I can't even imagine what Rebecca must have been going through. Because she was experiencing some sort of crashing, smashing within her womb, right? This is the breaking point for Rebecca. She can't stand it anymore. And so at the end of verse 22, she says, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? Now that translation makes Rebecca sound so much more articulate, so much more smooth than what it actually says. If you look in the original Hebrew, it's actually a sentence fragment. So that she literally says, if thus, why me? If thus, why me? It's a sentence fragment. And what does that tell us? It tells us that it was a cry of distress. That she was just in emotional intensity. She was saying, God, why? Why is this happening to me? And what made this all the more perplexing and, and, and puzzling is that remember, what's the key to reading this entire story? the promise given to Abraham, right? God had already promised Abraham, through your family I will bless the world, and therefore, why is God making Rebecca barren? Why is God allowing Rebecca to endure this incredibly painful pregnancy? And so she must have been wondering, she must have been perplexed. Now what does this tell us? What's the lesson here? It tells us that just because you are God's chosen recipient for his promises and his blessings, that doesn't mean that your life will necessarily go more smoothly. Do you hear that? It doesn't mean that your life will necessarily go more smoothly. In fact, just the opposite seems to be the case. If you read through the life of Abraham's family, there seems to be an awful lot of barrenness going on, right? Remember that Isaac's mother, Sarah, was barren. And then Rebecca was barren. And then Rachel was barren, right? In every generation of Abraham's family, there was barrenness, there was trials, and there was suffering. What does that tell us? 1 Peter 4.12 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. As though something strange were happening to you. You see, suffering marks the people of God. Suffering marks the people of God. I know that some of you right now are going through some kind of barrenness in your life, right? You're going through barrenness in your health. You're going through barrenness in your career. Or you're going through barrenness in your academic life. Or you're going through barrenness in your romantic life. And you're saying to God, God, if I'm following you and if I'm trusting in you, why is my life so hard, right? It's so much easier for other people, and you're crying out with Rebecca, 
if thus, why me? Why me? So that's the question. Why did God make Isaac and Rebekah suffer? And I think a big part of the answer is found in verse 21. It says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. See, what is prayer? Prayer is crying out to God for help. Prayer is admitting that you can't make it on your own. You see, God was bringing Isaac to the place of prayer. You see, when we live in plenty and in prosperity and things are going well, we begin to rely on those things, right? We begin to trust in those things for our comfort and for our security. But you see, what suffering does is it strips away our self-sufficiency and it makes us rely on God. You see, suffering makes the all-sufficiency of God's glory and God's grace brilliantly bright and glorious to us in a way that prosperity and plenty and just luxury dulls us to that reality. You see, when everything is taken away and God is all that you have, that's when you finally realize that all along, God is all you need. What am I trying to say? This is the point that suffering makes God big in your life. Suffering makes God big in your life. Um, The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he wrote to the church and he shared of his own sufferings and he called this um, suffering a thorn in the flesh. We're not sure exactly what it is, but it's some sort of illness, some sort of persistent physical pain. And this is what the Apostle Paul wrote. Listen, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What is the meaning of the Christian life? Is the meaning of the Christian life merely ultimately to have career fulfillment, to do well academically? No, these are good things. Right? These are good things, but that's not the ultimate purpose. Is the purpose to find romantic fulfillment? Those are good things. Is it to find health? Is it to find wealth? No. The purpose of life is to delight in God and to lean on Him and to cherish Him above all things so that you can cry out what Melissa was sharing earlier. You can cry out with Job when suffering enters into your life. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. But blessed, blessed be the name of the Lord. Can you say that in your own life? When in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your barrenness, can you say, blessed be the name of the Lord? All right, before we move on, um, I want to point out just one more detail. It's, a, it's, it's an incredible, breathtaking detail. Look again to verse 21. It says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Did Isaac just pray once? Did he just say, Lord, heal my wife, and then boom, God answered the prayer. It's a little bit unclear, right? We're not exactly told. But if you look at the original Hebrew for the word prayed, it's in the imperfect tense. And what that means is that Isaac prayed and kept on praying. It means that Isaac prayed continuously. It means that, and I want you, I want you to let that sink in for a moment, okay? It means that Isaac prayed for 20 years. 
nonstop. Can you imagine that? I mean, don't you think that after one or two or three years of praying, Isaac would finally give up, right? Isaac would finally say, I don't think God is listening. I don't think God is going to hear me and answer my prayers. But Isaac kept on praying for 20 years. Why? Because he had a rock-solid confidence that God would fulfill his promises. What's the application? What's the lesson for us? That we should persevere in our prayers. That we should persevere in our waiting on God and trusting in God. Now, I'm not saying that as long as you keep on praying, God will give you whatever you want. Right? We don't even want that, right? Because a lot of times we pray for stupid things, right? We pray for things that harm us and hurt us. So we don't even want God to do that. But So what am I saying? I'm saying this, that God will never abandon you. God will never let you go. God will fulfill his promises to you. And some of you are saying, well, what are these promises, right? If it's not my wish list, what are these promises? Well, the Bible is full of these promises. Let me just read to you um, just one passage. From Jeremiah 29, listen carefully. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. You will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Alright, so that's the first point. God fulfills his promises through suffering. Second point, God fulfills his promises through a reversal. Now, Rebecca, in the midst of her pain, goes to the Lord and she inquires, what is going on? And this is God's response in verse 23. It's it's a kind of, of prophetic poem. God says, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. That is absolutely shocking. God is saying, I'm going to fulfill my promises, not through the eldest son, but through the youngest son. Not Esau, but Jacob. Now, it's hard for us to um, appreciate just the impact that this would have meant in that ancient culture, right? Because, you know, we're living in a modern world. Um, But here it is, right? In the ancient world, the most important person in the family, in any family, was the eldest son. Right? And the reason why is because by law and custom, the eldest son inherited the lion's share of the family wealth. Some of you are eldest sons and you're saying, let's go back to that time. <laughs> right? The eldest son was the designated heir and the leader of the family and of the clan. Right? And so because of that, all the power, all the prestige, all the wealth, all the expectations, all the glory flowed to the eldest son And in that culture, younger sons and women were of no consequence. They were nobody special, right? Everything was done through the eldest son. Nobody did anything unless you were an eldest son. Now, some of you are saying, I'm so glad we live in America. I'm so glad we live in modern times and not in a primitive and narrow-minded culture like that, where just because of your birth order, everything is, you know, handed to you. I wish that were so. Are we all that different? It may be true that it's not important anymore whether you're the eldest or you're the youngest son. In fact, it doesn't even matter anymore whether you're male or female. But it still matters a whole lot, doesn't it, whether you're born smart, whether you're born rich, whether you're born beautiful, right? 
the world still has a set of people that it says, these are the ones. These are the valuable, significant ones. They are the ones through whom anything and everything gets done, right? And the world dismisses and ignores the poor, the uneducated, and the ugly, right? In other words, the world still says the first will be first and the last will be last, right? It matters who, whether you're the biggest, the tallest, the most athletic, the most beautiful, the most successful, the most savvy, right? The world still says these are the ones, these are the special, significant people. We know this. I don't even need to tell you, right? We see it every day. Power and prestige flows in one direction. But what does God say? God says, in a world in which the oldest is the most important, I choose the youngest. I will fulfill my promises of salvation through the younger son, Jacob. What does that mean? What is that telling us? It means that God relates to us on the basis of free grace. It means that God doesn't relate to us based on what we can bring to the table, based on our accomplishments, based on our merits, but based on free grace. Why is it that in the Bible, and we see this again and again and again, right? especially read Genesis, we see this over and over again, whenever God works in the world, God deliberately chooses the one the world thinks of as failures. right? God always chooses the younger son, not the older son. God always chooses uh, the lowly, not the mighty, not the strong. God chooses the ugly, not the beautiful. right? God chooses the younger son, Abel, not the older brother, Cain. God chooses the younger son, Isaac, not his older brother, Ishmael. God chooses Jacob, not Esau. And what about the women? Whom does God choose to carry on the Messianic line? God chooses old, shriveled-up, barren Sarah, and not fruitful, beautiful, um, young Hagar, right? And God chooses ugly, googly-eyed Leah to bear the messianic line, right, Judah, and not her beautiful, beauty queen sister, Rachel, right? Why? Why does God do this again and again and again? Why does he choose to work through people the world thinks of as failures? Because God relates to us on the basis of free grace. So that no one can go to him and say, God, look at me. Look at what have I accomplished. Look at how good I am. You see, free grace means that no one is deserving of God's favor. You see, all of us owe an enormous debt of sin to God that can never, ever be paid back. And so if anyone is saved, if anyone finds favor with God, it has to be because of free grace. It has to be because God gives it to us as a gift, a free gift. Because Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived. And then he died the death we should have died as, as our just penalty, but we couldn't. It's because of Jesus Christ as our substitute. This is why God shows mercy to the lowly, younger sons of the world. To show the world that salvation has nothing to do with what the world thinks of as impressive. It has nothing to do with merit. It has nothing to do with accomplishments. It has nothing to do with what you can do, with your beauty, with your accomplishments. You see, this is completely different than the way the world works, right? In every sphere of life, whether it is academic, 
you know, commerce, whether it is, you know, romance, relationships. We know this, right? The people with the power and the prestige and the attention are the ones the world envies and the world admires. But that is not the case with God, right? You see, the world says there are certain people with a golden touch and they have everything, you know, and they're the proud. But what does the Bible say? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's the gospel. Jesus says the first will actually be last. And the last, in the end, will be first. This is radical free grace. All right. Before we move on, some of you might be saying, well, maybe God chose Jacob because of what a brute, what an ogre Esau is, right? And it's kind of true that Esau, he's impetuous, he's rash, he's kind of shallow, right? And, um, you know, he's kind of dumb, but is, is Jacob any better? And actually, we're going to get, I'm not going to go into this too deeply because next week with the story of the stolen blessing, we're going to go more in depth into an analysis of these two people, these two characters. But here's the question. Is Jacob any better? And if you take an objective look at the story, you have to say no. Right? Jacob is far worse. Jacob is manipulative. He's dishonest. He's this scheming crook. Right? And when he should have had compassion on his brother, he takes advantage of him, right? Jacob is, you know, just a rascal. And he comes off as far worse in the story. And what does that tell us? It tells us that God's choosing has nothing to do with Jacob's merits. Because Jacob is a scoundrel. He's a weasel. And he actually comes off as kind of unlikable. Unlike Esau. We actually kind of like Esau. It's true he's shallow. He's kind of dumb. But at least he's not tricky. He's the kind of guy, what you see is what you get. He's the kind of guy who wouldn't stab you in the back, but Jacob is. Jacob would have no hesitation to stab you in the back, to climb over your corpse to get what he wants. right? And therefore, this story is a scandal. This story is a scandal to us and to the world, because why does God choose Jacob to show his favor? Paul, the Apostle Paul, picks up on this story in uh, Romans chapter 9. Uh, let me read it to you. Here's what Paul says. Though the twins, and here he's speaking of uh, Esau and Jacob, though the twins were not yet born and had, done, and had done nothing, let me read it again. Though the twins were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election and God's purpose in choosing might stand, not because of works, but by him who calls, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. What is Paul saying? It has nothing to do with their character. It has nothing to do with how they're going to live their lives. It has nothing to do with whether they're good or bad. It has everything to do with God's free grace. So that God looks at that scoundrel, that weasel, and he says, I will show and I will pour out my grace and my love to Jacob. That is free grace. Do you understand? Do you believe this? Now, before we move on, let me say real quick, how do we receive God's grace? Do we say to God, God, look at me. Do we say, you know, you know um, pull yourself together like a man, be strong, and then say, God, you know, look at my accomplishments and then accept me for who I am. No, right? 
The gospel is admit that you're not altogether. Admit that you're weak. And then say to God, God, accept me because of what Jesus Christ has done on my behalf. Okay? So that's the second point. God um, fulfills his promises through reversal. Third point, God fulfills his promises through a warning. All right, so how, how are we doing in time? Okay, very good. Um, we're going to look at this story of the selling of the birthright. What does that selling mean? What is this story all about? Well, the narrator actually tells us at the end of the story, look at verse 34 at the end. It says, Thus Esau despised his birthright. What does that mean? What is this story about? Well, first, what's the birthright? Well, the birthright is the rights and the privileges of being the eldest son. Okay? So it's basically the legal status of being the firstborn. But remember that this is Abraham's family. And the birthright meant something far more than that. Remember that God had come to Abraham and said, through your family, I will save the world. And therefore, the birthright represented God's favor and God's blessing. And so when Esau despised the birthright by selling it, what Esau was essentially saying is, God, I'm not interested in your plan of salvation. I don't really care. What, and what did Esau sell his birthright for? For a bowl of stew. What does that mean? It means that Esau was more interested in filling his gullet, more interested in stuffing his face. He was more interested in immediate gratification and his immediate needs than he was for the things of God, right? And then look at verse 34. It says, He ate and drank and rose and went his way. There's no reflection. There's no remorse. Esau doesn't care at all. Now some of you are saying, well, does that mean Jacob is in the right? No. (laughs) Jacob is absolutely in the wrong, right? You know, Jacob no doubt had heard from his mother that the birthright was, was going to be given to him, right, because of God's promise. But Jacob should have trusted God. Jacob should have waited for God, but he tries to seize the birthright illegitimately, scheming, sort of, he sort of tries to get it by his own efforts. He's actually kind of like his grandfather Abraham. Remember, uh, God said, through you, I will, uh, I will give you a seed. And so Abraham says, I know, I have to sleep with another woman not with my wife Sarah, right? With Hagar instead. So it's kind of like that. So, so Jacob really is not in the right at all, but, but that's not the point of the story. And we're actually going to get to Jacob's story next week. The focus is on Esau, okay? The focus is on Esau in this story. And so what is the point? What is God telling us? It's a warning. This story is a warning. You see, the writer of Hebrews, the Hebrews is a New Testament book, and, the, and Hebrews actually picks up on the story. And if you read through Hebrews, Hebrews is this encouragement to Christians to persevere, to run the race with endurance, to fix their eyes on Jesus. Don't, don't slack. Don't, don't give up in the face of suffering. And then the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, and do not be unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, for immediate gratification, What is the writer of Hebrews telling us? You see, Esau is a model for us of the perpetually immature and useless believer. This is the person who doesn't want to sacrifice pleasant pleasures pleasures for the long-term benefits of obedience. This is the person who doesn't want to pay the high cost 
of Christian obedience, but is just interested in his immediate needs, in his immediate pleasures. This is the person who doesn't tithe, who doesn't give sacrificially and regularly. This is the person who doesn't put in the weekly hours in prayer, in reading the Bible, that it takes to grow in grace. This is the person who is not really interested in Christian friendship, who is not really interested in Christian fellowship, who doesn't think about how he can share the gospel with his or her friends um, and bring them in to know Jesus Christ. And you see, it's true, at first the costs outweigh the benefits, but the Bible tells us that the disciplined obedience will eventually lead to great fruit, to great joy and peace. And I don't want you guys to sort of dismiss the story. I want you guys to really take the story to heart. Take the story of Esau to heart that you don't sort of sleepwalk through your Christian life. To take your Christian life, to take knowing God seriously. And not to sort of like go immediately for all the pleasant pleasures, for you know, all the distractions, but to really, really long for the discipline and the obedience that God requires of you. Take Esau's story to heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are um, in absolute wonder and we marvel at this grace that you give us, that it's totally free, that you chose the younger son, not the older son, that you chose the lowly, the despised, the rejected, to show us that we relate to you completely on free grace. And Lord, we pray that this would utterly transform our lives, that it would, it would, it would make us people that see the world in a completely different way, that we would see through the, through, the, through the eyes and the lens of grace, that whether it is in romance, whether it is in our schools, in our careers, with our friendships, we would show favor to the lowly and we would not embrace the world's values. Lord, I pray that you would make this a powerful reality in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name.